For those of you who don't know me, my name is Alex Schroeder. I serve on staff here at Desert Springs as our discipleship minister. Uh, I'm grateful to have the chance to open God's word with you. I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter seven. <clears throat> Everything in life has a conclusion. We know this by experience. The best things, the worst things, the mundane and the spectacular. Nothing on this earth can last forever. It will all come to an end. And today, in Matthew 7, we're coming to a conclusion of sorts. It's not a conclusion of Jesus' entire life and ministry. We have another 20 or so chapters until we see that. But today we do come to the conclusion of the greatest sermon that's ever been preached, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We began this sermon in Matthew chapter 5, and we followed it closely these past couple weeks. We began looking at Jesus' prescription of what his disciples will be like, what the citizens of the kingdom will be like. And he describes people who are broken in spirit, that are poor, that are meek, that hunger and thirst for righteousness. And all of this builds to the key verse that seems to set the stage for the entire sermon, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus lays out a law for his people. We see in the second half of chapter five that this is an internal law, meaning that obeying and fulfilling this law is an issue of our own hearts. In chapter six, we see that God is honored when our religious lives are motivated in, by sincere motivations to honor the Lord, not to have praise from man. And we saw last week that the entire law can be summed up in loving your neighbor, to do for them what you would have them do for you. And this law and standard is so high, we can never begin to meet it on our own. We're meant to be brought to the end of ourselves, and thus we find ourselves circling back to those beatitudes mentioned at the very beginning by Jesus. When we take this law seriously, we become people who are made poor in spirit. We mourn our sin. We're meek before the Lord and we hunger and thirst for a righteousness that he alone can give us. But in, for all intents and purposes, Jesus' sermon, the last teaching point, comes in verse 12 of chapter seven. And these verses we're considering today, Jesus isn't unpacking new theological ideas, he's simply concluding. And there are certainly many effective ways to conclude a sermon. And today we're gonna to see the way that Jesus concludes it is by putting two options before us. We'll see this in four ways in particular. We'll, I'll mention them later. But the thing we have to see at the beginning is that Jesus, at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, demands that we make a response. We have to do, we cannot remain neutral on the teachings and the words of Jesus. It's not enough that we be impressed by the sermon or that we be entertained. Rather, we must obey. So in some sense, we could maybe summarize Jesus' main idea at the end of his sermon is, what are you gonna do about all of this? What are you gonna do in response to these words I've just said? So today, we'll see four pictures of how we can respond to the teaching of Jesus. In each of these, as I've said, we'll see a repeated thing of two options put before us. 
The reason why I'd suggest is because there are only two options before the Lord. We, either, we are either in Christ or we are not in Christ. Together, these four portraits that we'll see will create a tapestry that will show us that the response that Jesus requires is that we hear the word and then we do the word. So join me as I read our passage this morning, beginning in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good fr bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. The first portrait we'll see this morning is of two gates, two gates. We see this in verse, verses 13 and 14. This image is probably familiar to you. These verses are so commonly known in our culture that, we even, that they've spawned a common phrase that we hear, the straight and narrow. And when people use that phrase, I'm gonna stay on the straight and narrow, they generally mean something like living a morally upright life. But is that what Jesus is talking about here? Is he mainly concerned about not getting in trouble and not messing around in life? I don't think so. Jesus' aim isn't about moralism and about being a good person, Instead, the straight and narrow has everything to do with how we respond to this teaching from Jesus and how we respond to the life of this king. In other words, the takeaway shouldn't be, I'm gonna go get it together. The takeaway needs to be, I'm gonna go bow to this king. So Jesus tells us about two gates. The first gate is wide. The entryway is massive. The road behind it is broad. And the way on that road is easy. 
Contrasted with that is another gate, much smaller. The road is constrictive and the way is difficult. And Jesus tells us to go down that one. But what are these roads? What are these gates? Well, the wide gate is the gate of the world. It's the way of the unbeatitudes, that you'd be proud in spirit, that you'd be cold and, card, cold and hard-hearted, that you would hunger and thirst for approval, you'd be harsh, that you'd be vile in heart, and that you would cause strife and war. It's the way of religious hypocrisy, living for the praise of the world. It's the way of treasuring the world, that you'd live for the stuff of the world. This is the path that rejects Jesus as king, and it's the path that crowns self as Lord. Lives for self-glory, self-protection, self-sufficiency, self-esteem, self-actualization, and on and on. It's about the self. And it's the wide way. It's the way that you entered when you were born. We're there, we're all there by nature. We don't stumble upon it and find our way in. And without God's intervention, we are so happy to stay on this way. It's, it's just simply far too easy in this way of life to ever want to leave. You can go wherever you'd like. Truth's relative. You can live after your own desires and no one can tell you you're wrong. Oh, it's easy, but it lies to you. It may look easy and it may feel comfortable, but the end of this road is certain. Look with me in verse 13. Where's the end? Destruction. And you may be asking yourself, well, what's Jesus talking about here? Destruction. Is he just saying like, it might come back to bite you at some point? Life's not as good as you think it is. You know, it's not always gonna be flowers and roses. No, in each of these four portraits, Jesus will show and he'll reference in times judgment. The way we respond to the teaching of Jesus results in how we face judgment later. And so the destruction Jesus is talking about here is not that something unfortunate would happen in your earthly way, that you trip on the path and get a sprained ankle. No, it's that you would be judged by the Holy Lord of the universe for all eternity. And so this path says to people, come to me, you'll be free, you'll be happy, you'll discover yourself. But the reality is far more like George Whitfield put it many years ago. Consider the torment of burning like a livid coal, not for an instant, not for a day, but for millions and millions of years. And at the end of those millions and millions of years, you'll realize that your soul is no closer to the end than it was at the beginning. This is the life of the wide way. This is the outcome of the broad gate. But church, there's another gate. There's a way out. There's a narrow gate and we must look for it. As Jesus said, it's a narrow gate. You've gotta go through it alone. You don't go through it because of who your parents are or how you were raised. You don't go through it because of what your friends are doing. You go through it alone. You go through it with nothing else. You can't take the things of the world with you through it. You'll have to leave them behind and go just for the Lord. And it's narrow. It'll be hard to see. There may even be times that you look at that gate and go, is it really the gate? Is it really going to the outcome that's different than the way of the world? 
But church, we believe by faith that Jesus doesn't lie. This gate is different. And the gate, as I've said before, has everything to do not with living the good life or living in a, a, a good moral life. It has everything to do with responding to Jesus. In John 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Do you see that? What is the gate that we enter through? It's not moralism. It's through Jesus. All of eternity rests upon whether we come to him by faith. And whether we enter into relationship with Christ and through Christ have relationship to the Father in heaven. He is the gate. All eternity hinges on him. That's not the only thing Jesus tells us to do. He says, enter the gate, and then he says, walk on the narrow road. We don't walk through the gate and then sit down. We don't walk through the gate and then go back to the broad road. We walk through the gate, and then we walk on that narrow, constrictive way of faith. Jesus is appealing to us this morning, both to a, for a decision to follow him and to endure following him. And the road is narrow. This isn't a criticism of Jesus's way. Rare things or difficult accomplishments are actually far more valuable and glorious. Think about the narrow way that it requires to be a part of a special military unit where only so many percentage of people can make it through the narrow way and be honored by being a Green Beret or some equivalent in another branch of the armed forces. The narrow way isn't a negative thing, but it shows the glory of the life that follows after Christ. The way is ethically confining. We don't live for ourselves. We don't get angry and think that we're in the right. We forgive quickly and joyfully. We don't live for the praise of man. We don't treasure things of this world and clutch them so tight-fisted that our knuckles are getting white but we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. But that's not the only thing that makes the path narrow. Sure, it's ethically confining, but there's also a play on words here in the language that Matthew first wrote this down. This word for narrow is related to the same word that describes tribulations and afflictions in life. It seems like what Matthew, as he's recording Jesus' words, wants us to think about is not just that the way will be ethically confining, but we will be persecuted that we'll be rejected and hated, that the world, or that living as a Christian in the world will be hard. And many of you know this by experience. Walking the path with Jesus means that you may lose friends and family because of what you believe. You may have to face those who've done awful things to you and say, I'm choosing to forgive you. Your life won't be marked by your personal comforts, but instead will be marked by generosity and sacrifice. Even just fundamentally, guys, living the Christian life means that you struggle against sins. They don't have unhindered freedom to do whatever you want. You say, my desire is this, and I will fight against it to honor Christ and walk on the path. And we know this too, church. The world will hate you because you will swim against the currents that everyone else is swimming. It's a hard path. 
But we know this. Jesus, when he was trying to capture for his disciples what the life following him would be like, he said, go get an, a torturous instrument and put it on your back and carry it. Do you remember that when he said, follow me. If anyone would come after me, you better deny yourself and carry a cross, a big wooden heavy beam that surely marked someone's death. It's a hard life, but church, it's a glorious life. It's the only life that, that, get, that makes good on its promises. The other path over promises. It tells you there's more there than there really is. But every word of Jesus is always true. Every promise will be true. And so, church, when we hear the message of the apostles in Acts that salvation is found in no one else, there's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved, we know that this path is the path that leads to what Jesus tells us in verse 14, that it leads to life. It's the only path that leads to being in the presence of God. John Bunyan wrote one of the most well-known books in the English language when he was in prison. And you know it by the name Pilgrim's Progress. And in Pilgrim's Progress, it follows the main character, Christian, who's a young person seeking to find his way to the celestial city. And at one point, John Bunyan uh, says this about Christian on his journey to the city. They all went on until they came to the foot of the hill called Difficult. At the bottom of the hill, there was, a, there was a spring. But here, there were also two other ways beside the path. One went to the left, and the other went to the right. However, the narrow way went straight up the hill called Difficulty. Brothers and sisters, friends, the way following Jesus is difficult, but it's the only way. It's the narrow way that we're called to stay on and that we know reward will be at the end of it. And we know God will be with us every step of the way while we walk on this path. So following Jesus and his teaching will cost us. It will, but we will get everything in return. So first, Jesus shows us two, two gates. Now let's consider the next portrait, two trees two trees. We see this image begin in verse 16. When Jesus begins by speaking about various fruits and the plants that they come from. In short, Jesus is stating a very simple point that what is produced by something tells you about that thing. And guys, this is common sense. The other day, my wife and I were outside in our garden no, our garden, it's not a garden, it's a backyard that's kind of like a wilderness. And a guy came up to it who is like a random door-to-door -door salesman, and he's peeking into our backyard, and he's like, guys, if you have a weed that's got a yellow flower that's a goat head, you gotta get rid of it ASAP, right? We know that when you see what something's producing, it tells you about it. If you get the yellow flower, then you've got a demon in your backyard, right? <laughs> we know this to be true. Apple trees produce apples. Thorn bushes produce thorns. And it doesn't crisscross. It doesn't go the other way. Or as Jesus says it, you'll know them by their fruit. So Jesus says that we will recognize those who truly belong to him and those that are false prophets based on their fruits. We know it's about false prophets because he begins there in verse 15 when he says, beware of false prophets. And now a prophet 
is someone who would come bearing a message on God's behalf. So a false prophet would be somebody who declares a message saying it's from God when they know very well that it's not. And false prophets are a danger to the church. They're a danger to you. Paul describes false prophets and the danger they bring in 1 Timothy 2, and he says that one of the outcomes is that it leads to more and more and more ungodliness and that it spreads like gangrene in the church. Have you ever heard of the one in 60 rule? This is a rule that is recognized in air travel to show the dangers of being just slightly off course. If a plane travels 60 miles, just one degree off of the charted course, it will end up one mile from its intended destination. So it doesn't seem significant, right? 60 miles, you travel, you only end up one mile away from where you meant to be. That's not too significant. But if we extrapolate that out over time and over greater distances, one small degree of error winds us miles from where we're intended to be. And church, this is similar to how false prophets function. The message of a false prophet is not always so far away from biblical Christianity, but it's one degree off. And then you throw that in to someone who's got a charismatic or persuasive or easy to listen to style. And church, this is a danger to us. Someone who looks and sounds a lot like a Christian, but really is a wolf. So let's pause for a moment and just ask, how would you spot a false teacher? How would you know? If you're like me, you probably go to doctrine first. You'd wanna know what they believe about the Bible. Do they believe it's inerrant? Do they believe it's sufficient? Maybe you'd wanna know what they believe about conversion, what they say is true of the gospel. All good things. Those are good, important theological questions that have an orthodox answer. But Jesus doesn't tell us in Matthew, 5, Matthew 7 to find out false prophets by giving them a theological examination. Instead, he says, go look at their fruit. We'll know them by their conduct and their way of life. Just like a tree that bears apples is an apple tree, so we'll know who belong to Jesus by their lifestyle. So we must ask ourselves, when we're listening to teachers of, in the church, do they display the Beatitudes? Are they a peacemaker? Are they poor in spirit? Do they seek after the kingdom? Do they treasure Christ above anything the world offers? And just like trees take a long time to grow fruit, sometimes discerning this fruit takes time. But we're patient and we're discerning and we always go back to the standard of the Bible. Let's just think through a couple applications I think this necessarily drives us to. One, I think this, this, it's just so there, right? That leadership in God's church requires godliness, requires character. It is assumed that the people leading in God's church are not ungodly. And the Bible in so many places affirms this. We see it in the Old Testament, see it in the New Testament. If you're curious where, I'd point you to 1 Timothy 3, where we see prescribed qualifications for elders and deacons in the church. So doctrine is important. I'm not trying to undermine that. But so is the outcome and the way of leaders' lives. So church, we want you to know that the elders at Desert Springs care about this. 
We view the qualifications that would make someone a fit leader in the church to be how do they live, how they love the, the body, how they conduct themselves when no one else is watching. But church, it's not just the elder's responsibility. It's your responsibility too. Every member at Desert Springs has been given the authority by Jesus to determine the who and the what of the gospel. And with that, the who teaches the what. That's language we've used in membership class and at our membership meetings, so I hope it's, it's familiar to you. When we gather together at membership meetings and we're voting on potential elders and deacons, one of the things you must be discerning about is their character, not just their doctrine. And so you need to investigate it. You need to ask questions. You need to get to know people in our church deeper than just how was your day. The other way I think we have to apply this, church, because we live in a unique age where the internet and podcasts are all over, we are now exposed to far more teaching in a far easier way than ever before. And that one of the dangers, we know these people far less. So we've said we must guard ourselves against false prophets and we need to guard ourselves against good apples with bad theology. What I mean by that is people who are really kind and easy to listen to, but their theology stinks. They don't represent the Bible in any way. It doesn't matter how kind you are, but if you're teaching a, the prosperity gospel, universalism, a salvation by works, or a salvation without repentance, we don't need to listen to them. But we also need to guard ourselves, church, from bad apples with really good theology. And sometimes this is a greater danger to us. People who teach the right things and have the right doctrine, but their posture of heart does not reflect the spirit of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Just because someone speaks clearly, confidently, and convictionally doesn't mean that they speak like Christ would. And so if the preacher or teacher we're listening to doesn't exhibit meekness or isn't a peacemaker, then maybe we shouldn't submit ourselves to their teaching any longer. Or maybe if the outcome in us as we listen to certain teachers is we just find ourselves angry at people that disagree with us, Christians and non-Christians alike, then we need to see that the fruit that's being born in us by their teaching does not accord with what Christ says is true for his people. And so we reject those teachers regardless of how clever or how sharp they are. So we ought to be discerning, church, to look out for these two kinds of trees. And church, we ought to be seeking to be a certain tree ourselves. In the context of this, these concluding portraits that Jesus paints, we know what makes the tree good. It's does it submit to and respond to this message that Jesus has given? Does it bear fruit in keeping with his teaching? Next, let's consider Jesus' next portrait. Two confessors. Two confessors. We see this in verse 21 through 23. Jesus begins by saying that not everyone who calls him Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Then we see someone who has quite a spiritual resume standing before the Lord, Jesus calling him Lord, and yet this person is condemned and cast away from the presence of Jesus. So what do we make of this? This is a really hard teaching. Many of you are perhaps familiar with this and count this a verse that can be scary sometimes to read. To understand this, we have to look carefully at a contrast that Jesus makes in verse 21. 
He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. Jesus contrasts a confession versus obedience. A confession alone and then in right relationship with Christ. He's saying that we don't, it's not about having the right statements about Jesus that allow us to be brought into the kingdom of heaven. But instead, it's about whether we do the Father's will. So we have to ask, what is the Father's will? It's a great necessary question that flows from that. In the context of the sermon church, the Father's will is everything Jesus has just laid out for us. The will of the Father is to have a righteousness that's superior to the righteousness of Pharisees. It's having a righteousness that is not aimed at being righteous so that you like me or think I'm better than you or a holy person. It's a righteousness that lives for God alone. It's about a law that's internalized. It's about treasuring Christ and trusting a heavenly father for all of our needs. The will of the father is to listen to the words of Jesus and then do the words of Jesus. The problem though is that doesn't necessarily clear away all of our questions to see that. We still come with a couple, right? For one, does Jesus teach salvation by works here? He's really emphasizing what seems like doing the Father's will. So is he saying that's all that's required is doing the Sermon on the Mount perfectly? Maybe another question is, can I have any confidence that I can be saved? Because that standard is, sounds so high and this teaching can be so scary. So let's take that first one. Does this teach salvation by works? Certainly not. The whole counsel of scripture teaches very clearly that we are saved by grace through faith, not a result of works that no one may boast. But what we have to understand is that the Bible speaks about works of obedience as a fruit that flows out of our salvation in Christ and our faith in Christ. Jesus says that John 13, 35, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. They're not at odds with one another, but there's a necessary flow from one to the other. And we have to get the order right. Faith is primary, works are secondary. Faith is the root, it's the trunk, it's the branches of the tree, and, fruit is, or, and the fruit is obedience at the end. It's the works. But the life comes from the faith. That is primary. But when we understand that, we can start talking about works as essential. It's an essential part of our faith. And we don't get afraid or get queasy when we start talking that way because we understand faith is primary. And as James says, a faith that doesn't have works, that's a dead faith. But a living, genuine faith, oh, works are constantly flowing out. They're growing like crazy. And we see that this confessor, he actually boasts of deeds. But they're not deeds that were done with the heart of faith. I gave that picture of the tree earlier. Maybe for this confessor, it was a dead tree that had fruit stapled at the end of the branches. So you might look at it and go, is that growing fruit? It kind of looks like it, but it's not alive. There was not faith present. But we don't have to go to other passages of scripture to see that. I think we see this here too. Notice in verse 23, Jesus says to the person that, he's, that he casts out, I never knew you. 
Jesus links obedience to the will of the Father to relationship. Jesus says, you didn't do the works of the Father and I never knew who you were. So this confessor never had what's required to come to the Lord. He never had what is our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus calls us to know him and to know him is to love him and to love him is to obey his teachings and commandments. So let's go to that second question now. Is it possible to have confidence that we're saved or are we forever meant to be potentially self-deceived? Let me just start by saying this, in a room this size, there's a large possibility that there are false confessors here that will one day hear, depart from me, I never knew you. This passage certainly should cause all of us to have an appropriate level of introspection and trembling. Do I know Jesus? And we must know that our Confidence is not in what we could muster up and say, look what I've done for you, Lord. But it's also true that in a room this size, while some will have false assurance, some will have false doubting. There's many in here who have a sincere faith, but they hear a passage like this and go, "Uh, I don't know, I can't know, I can't know anything, and I'm scared. But the beauty of the gospel is that the answer to both those with false assurance and those with false doubting need to do the exact same thing. They need to throw themselves on Jesus. Jesus says this in John 6, verse 40, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. It isn't those that look at their accomplishments that are saved, And it's not those who get all the commands perfectly right so that they can have confidence. Lord, I do know I've done the works because I've done them all. Look, it's those who say, I'm looking at Jesus. I'm looking at Jesus. That's all we need to do. So if you have a false faith, be humbled by this passage, quiver a little bit, and then look to Jesus. And if you have a doubting faith, you need to look to Jesus. In a previous job, I worked at a college and I was kind of like a dorm dad and like big brother to a lot of college uh, males on campus. And I would meet with these guys quite a bit. And every year, I would meet with students that struggled with assurance of salvation. And they'd meet with me and say, I just don't know. I have grown up in a Christian home. I came to the Lord when I was 16, but I just, I'm doubting everything now. And after a long time of counseling these brothers, we'd go through the gospel. What is it? What, how does God save us? We'd talk about sin struggles to see if there's any ongoing sin that might be needed to be rooted out of their lives that also may be leading to some doubting of assurance. But the thing I found myself saying most often to them was that the Lord in his wisdom knows that when we don't have a confidence in our acts, our confidence has to be in him. That's actually what faith is to begin with, right? So in the Lord's wisdom, if you're doubting and you lack assurance, the Lord is purposefully leading you back to the only foundation we have, his son and his son's work to die and save sinners. Church, this is a, if this is where the Lord has you, he wants you to look to Jesus and just lean and cling so close to him. Let's consider the final picture. Two builders. I've seen two gates, two trees, two confessors, and finally two builders. Jesus shows us two builders and they build two houses. And in many ways, 
these two men are super similar. The text says they both hear the words of Jesus. They build a house. The house goes through tremendous trial with rains and floods and winds. But these two men couldn't be more different than day and night. One is described as a spiritual sage. He's wise. And the other, a spiritual moron. The word for fool is where we, in Greek, is where we get our word moron. So perhaps it's fair to say this person's a spiritual moron. But what's the difference? Look with me in verse 24 and then 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man. And then verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is a foolish man. All of the difference in life, all of the difference in which of those two options you are comes down to how you respond to Jesus and his teaching. Many people want to come and listen. Many want to say he's a good teacher, but narrow is the way of those who listen and obey, who hear what Jesus says. Jesus wants us to build our life on him. He, in his teaching, is the solid rock on which everything stands. If we're not built on that house, the destruction of judgment will come and our house will be obliterated. Yet, in him, in him alone, there is a solid rock that can hold us up through all of this life and all eternity. That's what wise people do, is to listen and obey. Perhaps James had this passage in mind when he says this in James chapter one, be hearers of the word and not doer. And, and, and I'm misquoting it, excuse me. When James said, be doers of the word and not hearers only. There it is, yeah. Be, hearers, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Oh. So church, don't listen to the Sermon on the Mount and say, man, that was good. Let me go ponder that some more. Let me just sit and think about what Jesus said. No, don't be a spiritual moron. Listen and obey. Build your house on the firm foundation. Trust in him and listen to him. So after Jesus concludes this sermon, Matthew gives us a little brief glimpse at what the audience was like. He says in verse 28 that they were astonished. We can muse a little bit over what might be astonishing them, right? Jesus clearly was wise. That's an astonishing thing when you see it. He gave them a new law. That's astonishing. The law of Moses wasn't lingering anymore. I've got a better law, right? Oh, whoa. It couldn't be that even just how he's like a spiritual heart surgeon, right? And he just seems to like put that finger right where it hurts most, right? But I think it's actually in his conclusion how Jesus talks about himself. Have you noticed that theme throughout everything here? Jesus gives us two options and all eternity rests on how we respond to those two options. And Jesus is the point. He's the gate. Listening to his teaching is what determines whether a tree's bearing good fruit. He's the one at the end of the day when we die and face judgment, he's the one that's keeping the gate 
that we have to go through. It's even interesting that Jesus, throughout the whole sermon, has said, my father, and here he's, he's saying our father, right, in heaven, and now he's saying my father. You get to call him father through me. And his teaching in, in building your life on the rock that will stand is only related to him. At the end of Jesus' sermon, Jesus says, I am the point of all of this. It's not about, it's not about being a good person. It's about relating to me and responding to my teaching. Those are bold statements. A simple man saying this stuff would be nuts. But Jesus isn't a simple man. They were astonished because they heard someone never talk like this before. We get to be astonished because we know the whole story, church. We know that the Sermon on the Mount is just one piece along the road to Golgotha. This teacher who speaks with authority boldly also did this law perfectly every day of his life. He lived the blessed life. He obeyed the Father, and it led him to have his hands stretched out and to die on a cross. But not because he was a criminal. He did it out of love for sinners like you and me. We get to be astonished that our king and lawgiver lives like this and calls us to follow this narrow path. God could have said, there is no way for you sinners. But instead he said, here's two options. Follow and obey, listen and do. And we know that not only did he die, he rose from the grave triumphant as the king over sin and death and that forgiveness of sins can be proclaimed to any sinner who finds refuge in him. So brothers and sisters, enter the narrow gate. Listen and obey and bear fruit. Do the will of the Father in heaven and build your life on Jesus. You can't just admire this and this teaching. You need to obey it. So what are you gonna do about it? Let's pray. Father, we look to you and see your mercy to send your son. Jesus came that we may have life and have it abundantly. And this law is a law of liberty that leads us to blessing. Father, would we find blessing and would we be wise? Oh God, give us grace. Work in us now in Jesus' name, amen.